Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with the growing indisputable evidence that Russia committed horrific war crimes in the city of Bucha. And we're still uncovering the extent of what Secretary of State Tony Blinken called a deliberate campaign to kill, torture, rape and commit atrocities. Here's Deborah Haynes of Sky News from a neighborhood in that war torn city. This is no ordinary crime scene. Behind the cordon, Yellow plaques, numbered from one to six, are all that distinguish the remains of one life from another. Each body burnt beyond recognition. We've not been here very long, but in this small corner of Butcher, we've already counted eight bodies. There are many more houses and gardens yet to be searched. Ukrainians say that every death is going to be investigated and cases built so that prosecutions for war crimes can be heard. NBC's Richard Engel spoke to a resident in Bucha today who described what it was like living through the massacre there. She's saying that she and other people here were completely terrorized by the Russian soldiers. So in an effort to try and show that they weren't threatening, they put signs like these on their apartment building doors to say, we're just peaceful civilians. But she said it didn't help very much that the Russians would burst into people's homes, that if you didn't open the door quick enough, they would just open fire and shoot anyone who disagreed with them. Earlier today, President Volodymyr Zelensky appeared before the U.N. Security Council describing the crimes committed in Bucha in graphic detail. I am addressing you on behalf of the people who honor the memory of the deceased every single day in the memory of the civilians who died, who were shot and killed in the back of their head after being tortured. Some of them were shot on the streets, others were thrown into the wells, so they died there in suffering. Women were raped and killed in front of their children. They were, uh, their tongues were pulled out only because the aggressor did not hear what they wanted to hear from them. After his speech, he played a stunning video showing the atrocities uncovered throughout the country. And we're about to play a portion of that video. And I do just want to warn our viewers that this video is extremely graphic. It was provided by the Ukrainian government, who added their own music to it. Take a look. NBC News reports that in response to these apparent war crimes, the U.S. will announce new sanctions, including a ban on new investment in Russia and increased sanctions on financial institutions and government officials. And the EU has also announced sanctions on Russia, Russian coal and ships. Additionally, almost 200 Russian diplomatic staff have been expelled from European countries this week in a direct expression of government's outrage at the slaughter of Ukrainian civilians in Bucha. 
Meanwhile, the war continues with Zelensky making the point that there are similar, there is similar devastation in other cities, including Mariupol, which is still under full assault, and Kharkiv, where the government says Russia is detaining pro-Ukrainian residents. The Ukrainian government also said today that shelling in Mykolaiv killed 12 people, including four children, with a total of 168 children killed during the war. And in the West, strikes were heard today in the city of Lviv. Joining me now from Lviv is NBC News anchor and correspondent Ali Velshi. And Ali, um, it was such a moving speech by President Zelensky today. Um, and then the Russian uh, ambassador spoke. And what he said was crackers, right? But the one thing that he wow, did yeah. say that probably rang true is they cl he claimed that they have taken 600,000 Ukrainians into Russia, including 119,000 children. If I'm not wrong, that sounds like genocide or a kidnapping. Um, tell me what you're seeing and hearing in Lviv. Well, this is the, these things that uh, until now were sort of academic uh, ideas because we didn't think we'd actually have to be dealing with them again become important, right? War crimes, hard to prove, harder to prosecute. Actually, they're not that hard to prove given the evidence that we've got. They're just hard to prosecute. Uh, remember that neither the United States nor Russia nor Ukraine are signatories to the International Criminal Court. Ukraine has allowed them uh, some jurisdiction after what happened in 2014 in Crimea. So then it falls to the United Nations. But Russia has a seat on the Security Council at the United Nations and brought accusations that maybe the Ukrainians themselves did the things that you you showed on those videos, uh, the, the atrocities uh, that were committed in in uh, in Bucha. So this becomes a problem because there are people here, um, Ukrainians, who are saying, first of all, Ukraine should ratify the International Criminal Court participation anyway. They're already starting a war crimes tribunal here. But there's some semantics. Uh, President Bush was asked, is this a genocide? Zelensky says, yes, Bush, uh, I'm sorry, Biden. Uh, President Biden mm -hmm. said, um, I don't know, but it's war, war crimes. So the issue is, are these people deliberately being targeted because of who they are, i.e. because they're Ukrainians? Because you have heard Russian officials, including Vladimir Putin, say it's not really a cult country. They don't really have a culture. There are people in Russia who are calling for the annihilation of the Ukrainian people. Well, when you combine that with mass civilian killings, uh, the Ukrainians, at least some of them, including the president, are interpreting that to be war crime, uh, to be genocide. Now, here's the rub. Whether it's war crimes or genocide, uh, Joy, it, it, there's a question of enforcement. There are no rules if there's no one to enforce them. And there's no one who's there who's likely going to go and arrest Vladimir Putin. He's certainly not turning himself in. So whether or not Vladimir Putin and his henchmen will be subject to prosecution and punishment, which is what a lot of Ukrainians want right now, is secondary to the fact that this war goes on and they need that what they really want. You listed all the things that are going on in the world, more sanctions, expulsion of diplomats. They still want more weaponry. They, they need a way to keep their air uh, spaces clear of Russian attacks. As you said, uh, there was a, a, a shell that landed about 40 miles from where we are in western Ukraine. Uh, these, these rocket attacks, these missile attacks continue daily. Uh, the Ukrainians are saying, do anything you want. Sell us your stuff, lend us your stuff, lease us your stuff, but we need more stuff. We don't need your troops in here. We need air support and we need more weaponry. Yeah. Ali Velsha, you have you have uh, just described the big flaw in this world order that the U.N. is supposed to preside yep. over. It's that it's a gentleman's agreement. And if there are people who are the opposite yep. of gentlemen and are willing to flout the rules, there is no enforcement mechanism. Kind of sounds like the issues we have with our own United States Constitution. Unenforceable norms. Um, right. Ali Velshi, it's very vexing. Thank you very much, my friend. Stay safe.
Joining me now is Linda Thomas-Greenfield, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. Um, Madam Ambassador, thank you so much for being here. Um, I, I want to get your reaction um, in the room when that harrowing video was finally played. I know there was a delay um, of the atrocities that we've seen in Ukraine per as perpetrated by the Russian military. You know, I, we were all speechless. Uh, we had all seen various uh, uh, videos showing atrocities, but they all covered up uh, the real, uh, you know, the real people that were there. They were all blurred. This was the first time I had seen that video without the bodies being blurred. And it was horrific. And there was silence uh, in the room. Uh, I can tell you that uh, people were horrified. Uh, and it was an extraordinarily effective message to give to the Security Council uh, to confirm the atrocities that we all know have been uh, carried out in, uh, in Ukraine by the Russians. I also want to get your reaction to the Russian Federation's uh, ambassador, um, Vasily Nebenzia. Um, he also had something to say. Let me play a little clip of it for our audience. Despite of all factual evidence and common sense, you're trying to lay the blame for their death on the Russian military. This is absolutely unacceptable. The fact that even consider that Russian uh, military would be capable of this. And now we're seeing blatant criminally staged events with the uh, Ukrainian civilians who were killed by their own radicals. Uh, the only ones who could fall for this fake are absolute dilettantes or Western partners. We came to you, to Ukraine, not to conquer lands. We came to bring the long-awaited peace to the blood-soaked land of Donbass. We need to cut out the malignant Nazi tumor that is consuming Ukraine and would in time begin to consume Russia. And we will achieve that goal. And, and I've read through most of his speech, which is bizarre. Um, and I wonder, A, what was your reaction to that? I know you were in the region not long ago. I, I was, Did you see it, I any was, evidence... Of it what he's talking about. That he would no. Um, we saw evidence of what he was talking about, but not evidence of anyone else doing it but them. Uh, I was in the region meeting with women and children who had escaped that carnage, who had left their husbands and many times elderly relatives behind. And they were worried about what had happened to their relatives. This was this was so incredible that uh, he would say that the Russians would have us believe that uh, th this was all staged. And the truth of the matter, Joy, is before February 24th, none of this was taking place in. Ukraine. There were no bodies on the streets. There were no uh, people uh, being killed. There was no blood flowing. So only Russia is responsible for this. And they would have us believe that the Ukrainians did this to themselves. Uh, it is absolutely ridiculous. And nobody believed it. Uh, he, he was talking to, to himself because not a single person in that room believed what he said. Yeah, it was clear he was doing that for an audience of one, meaning Vladimir Putin. Um, President Zelensky has it's flat out accused 
And I think we've all seen the evidence of it, um, uh, the Russian Russia of war crimes. And we know that there are these two designations. There are crimes against humanity, you know, individually targeting um, individual people for, for slaughter and, and torture. Um, and then there are also genocide, the idea of trying to wipe a people off the map. Have you, do you believe that, that either of those two things have happened, crimes against humanity, war crimes uh, and genocide in Ukraine? War crimes and crimes against humanity have absolutely taking, taken place, and we are working with the Ukrainians to document the evidence so that we can prove it, that the Russians have committed atrocities, that they have committed war crimes. Uh, we saw evidence of that in the pictures out of Bucha today. And we all know that once uh, we get into Mariupol, we're going to see more evidence of atrocities being committed. This is not the first, and we expect to see many more uh, pictures like what uh, we, we saw today. And if, in fact, the U.N. Um, comes as a body to believe that Russia has committed crimes against humanity, war crimes, and maybe perhaps even genocide, they've expressed the desire essentially to wipe Ukraine away and get rid of it. Um, what power, I think this is the question a lot of people are asking is, what power does the United Nations have? I think President Zelensky, in a way, asked it to enforce these global norms. Is there something that the UN can actually do um, to yeah. Russia? Uh, Zelensky was extraordinarily uh, effective today in his presentation to the Security Council, and he called upon the Security Council to take responsibility. And I can tell you, Joy, that over the past six weeks, we have worked diligently to isolate Rus Russia in the Security Council, and they are isolated. We have had two votes in the General Assembly with overwhelming support to first uh, call out Russia and, 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 and condemn what they have done, and secondly, to support humanitarian assistance for uh, the Ukrainians. Uh, they are isolated in the Security Council, as you uh, saw today. They're isolated in the General Assembly, and they are isolated around the world. And you may have heard that I announced yesterday, and mention it today in my remarks, that we are going to move forward to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council. They have not acted in any way to uh, really uh, uh, give us confidence that they deserve to be on, on the uh, Human Rights Council or um, uh, to continue uh, to act as they are in the Security Council. They are a member. That's a fact. We can't change that fact, but we certainly can keep them isolated. We can keep them on, on their heels. And we, have a, we are literally out of time, but I'm going to sneak one more question in. Should they be kicked off the Security Council, and can that happen? They Look, the Security Council was created as a product of uh, the creation of the UN after World War II. They are a member of the Security Council. That's a fact. Uh, we can't change that fact, but we certainly can isolate them in the Security Council. We can make their presence in that body very uncomfortable, and we have done that. And we are working to kick them off the, uh, or to suspend them from the uh, Human Rights Council. 
Thank you, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. The ambassador will be honored tomorrow night by the Reverend Al Sharpton at the National Action Network's Keepers of the Dream Awards Gala for her career in public service and her leadership at the United Nations. And up next on The Readout, Ivanka Trump talked to the January 6th Select Committee for about eight hours today as we learn about a rather surprising admission from her father, the former president. Also, I intended to get health care passed even if it cost me re-election, which for a while looked like it might. Just like old times, former President Barack Obama makes his first visit to the White House since leaving office. Can he help President Biden with a political reset? Plus, in a perfect world, we would ignore QAnon queen Margie Green and her revolting pedophilia shtick. But you can't ignore her because she is the Republican Party, and that is truly horrifying. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. NBC News was the first to report that Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka Trump, appeared voluntarily before the Select Committee investigating January 6th today, testifying for roughly eight hours. As a White House official during Trump's administration and a member of the family, she's clearly a high-value witness with knowledge of Trump's state of mind that day. Ivanka was with her father before, during, and after the Capitol siege and was notably by Trump's side in the tent during his rally at the Ellipse. In January, the committee also revealed that Ivanka was sometimes at odds with her father. According to witnesses, on the morning of January 6th, she actually praised Vice President Mike Pence for resisting her father's demands. And after the violence broke out, she was among those pushing Trump to call off the mob. But even she had difficulty persuading him to take action. The committee says they are particularly interested in her answer to the question of why White House staff didn't simply ask the president to walk to the briefing room and appear on live television to ask the crowd to leave. Here's what Chairman Benny Thompson told reporters about Ivanka Trump's testimony while it was still ongoing this afternoon. She's answering questions. I mean, you know, not uh, in a broad, chatty term, but she's answering questions. Not that I'm aware of. Or any other privilege for that matter, executive privilege? Not that I'm aware of. 
This comes after Ivanka's husband, Jared Kushner, provided helpful information to investigators during his testimony last week, according to a member of the committee. Joining me now is Peter Strzok, former FBI counterintelligence agent, and Tim O'Brien, senior columnist at Bloomberg Opinion and an MSNBC political analyst. And Tim, I am going to start with you because normally news that Ivanka and Jared are cooperating with the committee um, would, would, you know, not interest me a lot. But understanding <laughs> the Trump family's penchant for self-promotion and self-preservation, you know, it would, and also their lack of loyalty even to each other. It wouldn't shock me if she was willing to throw her dad under the bus in order to rewrite her own story historically. What do you think? Well, you know, this is also coming up in the New York State Attorney General's investigation and the Manhattan DA's investigation, the extent to which the children who were co-conspirators with their father or witnesses of their father's behavior are going to disgorge what they know or sort of lay down on the railroad tracks for their father. And I think what's interesting about today is that um, they didn't have to subpoena her. She willingly spoke to the committee. She spoke to them at length and and, uh, in a a way in which they were satisfied with her testimony. Uh, You know, her tension with her father has always been that among the three eldest children, she has had this pride of flakes. And she is the only child he has sort of been in an unvarnished and often uh, disturbing way. Uh, fond of what she represents in his life. Um, and she has always tried to recreate her own public image as something other than this cartoon grifter kind of halo that has clung to the Trumps in New York and that people came to know later on the national stage. On the morning of January 6th, for whatever her misgivings were about her father putting pressure on Mike Pence, the reality is at, at when the insurrection broke out, she initially tweeted, uh, please, patriots, something to the effect of, please, patriots, stand down and go home. A tweet she later deleted because she used the term patriots instead of the appropriate term of insurrectionists or seditionists. Um, nonetheless, she appeared to be authentically disturbed by what her father did. And the, the end goal here for the January 6th committee is to discern the extent to which Donald Trump was not a bystander to a, a set of grotesque events that he set in motion, but was actually their architect and their primary instigator. And to the extent yeah. that she has witnessed him acting in that way, it's valuable testimony. And she's appeared to offer some of that. Yeah. And Peter, you know, put yourself back in FBI counterintel mode. I mean, if you have a family that's this transparent, um, that the father is, is open, you know, about wanting to overturn the election and pre previewed it for months, you know, saying in December it's going to be wild, sort of told you what he was going to do. Then it happens. And you have a family that's this transactional, even again with each other. There's no loyalty in any direction. Um, how would you use just in an investigative matter, someone like Ivanka to try to get to the bottom of the insurrection? Yeah, well, you know, I can't overstate the importance of having somebody inside the room of a potential criminal conspiracy. When they uh, offered and invited uh, Ivanka to show up, they wanted to broadly talk about four things. The first was any sort of conversations Trump might have had about the events leading up to January 6th. Two events on January 6th itself. One, a focus on any interactions and conversations he had about Mike Pence, a tweet he issued about Mike Pence. And then the second issue, any sort of role that he had with regard to deploying 
or not deploying the National Guard. And then finally, the fourth topic they wanted to ask her about was anything after January 6th that might indicate some attempt to cover up what had happened, to not talk to somebody, to try and get stories straight. So I think when you have somebody like this walk in the room willing to talk to you, and she's certainly well advised by counsel, I would be very surprised if she said anything that was a lie, that later on if she was interviewed by the FBI and the Justice Department that would be at odds with what she said. So it's, it says to me, one, that she does have a desire, and I agree with uh, Tim, I think it's very much one to burnish her historical image and to rechrome that image, but it's of immense importance to the committee and certainly will be to criminal investigators as well. Yeah, well, good luck rewriting your image. You won't be able to do that. Uh, really quickly to stay with you, Peter, for a moment. Mike Pence is also another interesting figure because Trump had no loyalty to him. He was willing to let people hang him. He was willing to let him be lynched in order to stay in office. <clears throat> but what's interesting is that Chairman Benny Thompson has said that they have ruled out subpoenaing Mike Pence, which I found very interesting, um, citing significant information it had received from two of his aides, Mark Short and Greg Jacob. Thompson also indicated the panel would not be likely to call Trump as a witness saying, I don't know anything else we could ask Donald Trump that the public doesn't already know. He ran his mouth for four years. What do you make of the fact that Mike Pence seems to be cooperating without a subpoena? Well, I think it's really interesting. When you look at Mike Pence, I mean, he's clearly making political calculations right now about where he stands with regard to the 2024 presidential race, whether he himself wants to run, whether he wants to back other candidates. And so he is looking at this not only in terms of what his role was, whether he has any criminal exposure. And I, I don't think from what I've seen that he does, but we don't know all the facts. But certainly I think his behavior is very much influenced by what is coming down the road with the next presidential election. And it seems from I agree with you. This is much more his, the, the, un, the unwillingness of the committee to issue a subpoena to him is very interesting to me. And it does seem to indicate that whether it's with the committee or whether it's with some parallel investigation that's going on within DOJ and the FBI, that there are some things at play that are not public that is weighing, uh, that is playing a part of, uh, of playing a role in this decision by the committee. Yeah, it is interesting. I, I, one more for you, uh, Tim, because this is interesting, too. If they were to call Donald Trump, I wonder what he would say to this answer. Did you win or lose the election? Um, Liz Cheney, the other day, she let's just play it real quick. We have 20 seconds. Go ahead. Here's, here's Liz Cheney. We have learned that President Trump and his team were warned in advance and repeatedly that the efforts they undertook to overturn the 2020 election would violate the law and our Constitution. Despite all of these specific warnings, President Trump and his team moved willfully to attempt to halt the peaceful transfer of power, to halt the constitutional process for counting votes. Okay, but Tim, this is what Donald Trump said. And this was an interview that he did with historians last summer. And in the clip, he's talking about a deal that he says he struck with South Korea's president to cover more of the country's defense. Here's what he said. We had a deal. He was going to pay $5 billion, $5 billion a year. But when I didn't win the election, he had to be the happiest. He didn't win the election. and He knows it. Your thoughts, Tim. Uh, Donald Trump has been lying about deals and his own track record for uh, 60 of his 70 plus years. He's lying now. He's not to be taken at face value on anything he says about the outcome of the election or anything that led up to it or occurred after it. Yeah. And he knows he lost, which is that's and he knows he lost. Of, of course he did. He, which yeah. is why he's he lying. knew he was lying. 
Exactly. Peter Strzok, Tim O'Brien, thank you both very much. Still ahead, President Obama returns to the White House after a five-year absence to celebrate the success of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, because as President Biden put it so memorably, it's a big effing deal. We'll be right back. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Vice President Biden, Vice President. That was a joke. It is good to be back in the White House. Um, it's been a while. Mr. President, welcome back to the White House, man. Feels like the good old days. We just had lunch together and we weren't sure who was supposed to sit where. Uh, <laughs> nice to see people smile. For the first time since leaving office, former President Barack Obama was back at the White House today. And beyond just getting the buddy act back together, Obama joined Biden to announce new steps to expand access to the Affordable Care Act, their administration's biggest legislative achievement, which was Vice President, which was, as Vice President Biden called it back then, a big effing deal. The ACA wasn't perfect. To get the bill passed, we had to make compromises. Today, the Biden-Harris administration is going even further by moving to fix a glitch in the regulations that will lower premiums for nearly 1 million people who need it and allow 200,000 more uninsured Americans get access to coverage. Last month marked 12 years since President Obama signed the legislation into law, enabling millions of Americans to get health coverage. The former president's return comes at a pivotal time as Biden faces declining approval numbers, rising inflation and concerns about Democrats' electoral prospects in the upcoming midterms. And joining me now is Cornell Belter, Democratic pollster and president of Brilliant Corners Research and Strategies. And OK, my friend, I know you're a pollster. I, I know you're a pollster. But I got to ask you if these polls really do mean anything. I'm serious. I, I, I've become led. I, I'm a I'm I'm a polling geek. I love polls, but I'm starting to wonder if we can trust them. Let's just put these up. Here's a series of polls from 2010 until Biden now. And that's the approval ratings for Obama, 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 Biden. As you can see, they, they fluctuate a little bit, but the wipeout election of 2010, you were at 49-44. He was actually above water, Obama was. Then he was even, in 2012, got reelected with a lower approval rating. Then in 2014, it drops 44-51, and then they also had a bad year that year. But the bad year was 2010. Where do you see Biden falling, just historically based on the numbers? The enthusiasm numbers aren't good. Republicans, 67 percent enthusiasm. Democrats, 50. What does it all mean? 
Well, it, thank you, Joe, for that. I mean, you have to take a back step, step back and take a historical look at this, right? One, Joy, please stop reading so many polls. I'm a pollster. I know. People are using polls these days for everything, uh, and it's and, and it's just too much polling out there in in, in, the, in the in the public space. But but let's step, let's step back from this. From a historical standpoint, there are dynamics at play in the in the midterm that quite frankly the president is not the central variable in that di- in, in this dynamic right whether it be whether it be George Bush whether it be Barack Obama whether it be Bill Clinton um, we know the pattern that happens throughout history so the president actually isn't the key variable in this in, in this in this conversation I know everyone wants to make the president the key variable and say only if Biden were doing better, but you could say oh, only if George Bush was doing better, only if President Clinton was doing better, only if Obama was doing better. There are only one variable in this. What happens yeah. on this uh, on during the midterm, what we're facing right now, and the same thing you saw with uh, uh, with, with the recent Republican presidents is you do have a lack of enthusiasm, a letdown among base Democratic voters. When you look at sort of where younger voters are and when you look at where voters of color are right now, they do see they, they are lacking the enthusiasm. What one thing that Republicans can always count on is that their their base vote will turn out and, and it's more reliable at turning out. And by the way, they do things that generate and throw red meat to 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 their base vote. Whether you're talking about critical race theory or whether you're mm-hmm. attacking the first African-American woman to be nominated for Supreme Court justice, all these classic Dog whistles and feeding of the of the of the Republican base is what they do to energize their base voters. And quite frankly, I, you know, and I think Democrats are guilty of not, quite frankly, paying enough attention and throwing red meat and trying to feed uh, our, our base the way Republicans do. We say fixate it. Yeah. I think far too often on this mythical swing vote in the middle that we put all the weight on as Republicans understand that it starts with energizing their base and then building out. Yeah, absolutely. here's, Here's President Obama's prescription for what to do about the midterms. Mr. President, what do you say to Democrats worried about the midterms? What do you tell Democrats worried about the midterms? We got a story to tell, just gotta tell it. So these are the Senate races that are up. There are 14 Democrats and 21 Republicans that are senators that are up. Um, there are three sort of swingy Republican races and one uh, Maggie Hassan uh, in New Hampshire for Democrats and then some toss ups around the country. Do, is it as simple as voters of color and younger voters just don't turn out in midterms reliably? And so there's not much you can do because they're just not reliable, as you said, unless you find something to make them enthusiastic. And there really isn't anything right now. Is that the fate of the Democrats? Or could the fact that you have things like Roe v. Wade uh, about to be overturned, these anti-gay laws, um, the extremism of the Republican Party, does that change the potential outcome here because Republicans are taking it so far and being so overtly racist and anti-woman, anti-gay, anti-everybody? I think to the president's point, I think Democrats have a good, have, have a fantastic story to tell. They just, they just have to do a better job of, of telling, and they have to be committed to, in fact, telling that, telling that story. Look, I've said on this network many times that 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 abortion rights or, or choice is a mobilizing uh, issue for the right until joy, until those white it. women in suburban America feel as though that rights can be taken away from them. And then all of a sudden we're going to find out 
quite frankly, how important that is for, for them. But however, we have to, in fact, drive that conversation. We have to decide what the election is going to be about. Look, in Virginia, what just happened was, quite frankly, you did have a very different electorate in Virginia this time around than you had um when Northrop won the, won the last time around, you had a you had an yeah. electorate that was less diverse and less young. Look, and they dominated that conversation with, with Republican-based issues. Let's dominate the conversation with, 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 with choice. Let's dominate the conversation with justice and policing. Let's dominate the conversation with voting rights. And let's see what happens. Yeah. And let's see what happens. Amen. And tell who the other side is. And we're going to do a little bit of that tonight on the show. Cornell Belcher, thank you very much, my friend. Appreciate you. Up next, Republican Congresswoman, as we were just speaking about, telling the story of who these people are. Marjorie Taylor Greene's buffoonery can be tough to stomach, but we cannot afford to ignore the things she says, even if the Republican Party's alleged leaders are happy to do just that. We're back in a minute. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay, I know, I know, I know, but stay with me just for a second. Trust me, I don't want to talk about her any more than you do. But here's the thing, we have to. Because the frightening reality is that Margie Q is the present and future Republican Party, period. And if we don't talk about her, if we don't address this clear and present danger, folks like Marjorie and the idiot Thelma to her bonehead Louise, Lauren Boebert, will keep getting elected along with their friends. Marjorie Green is a far-right conspiracy theorist, a toxic smearmonger. Upon learning that three non-kook conservative Republican senators would support the Supreme Court nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Green peddled her toxic garbage on Twitter, calling those senators pro-pedophile. The grotesque defamatory statement is based on the actually defamatory accusation led by Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Tom Cotton, and their barking dog colleague, Lindsey Graham, that Judge Jackson is soft on sentencing child pornography offenders. It is a lie. And yet, they have no problem supporting fellow Republicans even after learning of their actual sexual exploitation of children and women. Margie Q herself hangs out with Matt Gates, who is under investigation for having sex with a 17-year-old and paying her to travel with him, including across state lines. Let's not forget the object of MAGA worship himself, Donald Trump, and the dozens of allegations of sexual misconduct made against him, and the allegations that as the host of a, or the owner of a teen beauty pageant, he enjoyed busting into the dressing rooms when the teeny girls were naked. Trump, who endorsed sexual predator Roy Moore and the horse he rode in on, and who was chummy with Jeffrey Epstein, a felon who was accused of pedophilia and sexual abuse for more than a decade. The hypocrisy aside, let's just be very clear about what Marjorie Taylor Greene is doing. The whole libs are pedophiles talking point, it sounds very similar to what she's all about. QAnon. Now remember, the centerpiece of the QAnon cult's ideology is this made-up claim that a massive child sex trafficking ring is being secretly run by Democratic and Hollywood elites and that Trump is gonna root it out. Sure, the Republican platform is based on fear tactics, the fake CRT boogeyman, how mentioning gay existence will turn your child gay or trans. But listen closely to the catchphrases invading our discourse. Calling non-pedophiles pedophiles, all this talk about groomers, it is a duck call to Q. We may not wanna listen to this utter twit, but they are. And up next, how the pro-pedophile attack triggers the QAnon id, and why that is so dangerous. Stay with us. 
Conservative political operatives have figured out what riles up their base. The fake threat that progressives are trying to indoctrinate their children, to groom them to become gay or trans. These terms, indoctrination, grooming, predator, accusing innocent people of being pedophiles or being soft on pedophiles, it is all so a very specific trigger for a group that is sinking its teeth into our political discourse. Folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene know that. There's a reason her pro-pedophile tweet is the attack du jour. It's a bat signal to QAnon. Joining me now is Ellie Mastal, justice correspondent for The Nation. And Ellie, you have made this point before, that when these people are saying over and over and over again, pedophile, 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 and then associating that with any Democrat in front of them, they are, it is a dog whistle to get the QAnon people and sick them on whoever that is. And you've talked about the fact that they know these people are dangerous and they're doing it on purpose because they don't care if if this judge, if Judge Jackson gets hurt. I'm going to let you talk. Yeah, so when I first brought this up, what did these conservatives say? How dare you say that asking questions about her record is inciting violence against her? But you see, they ain't questions anymore. Because unfrozen caveman congresswoman is no longer asking questions. She's making declarative statements about pedophilia and who is for it and who is against it. And that's basically what you saw all throughout the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday, starting with hypocrite Lindsey Graham and going on down through their whole party. Now, these attacks are designed to attack uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson's not her record, but her personal character. And that we know that these uh, attacks um, can put her life and the life of her family and children in danger. And we know they know that. And we know that they have something particularly that they're angry at her about. And it's not her. It's not the alleged uh, 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 pedophile sentencing record. It's the fact that Kentaji Brown Jackson sentenced Edgar Welch, who is the guy who went to Comet Pizza in Washington, D.C., looking for the pedophile ring to do violence. He's the Pizzagate guy. Kentaji Brown uh, Jackson sentenced him. You know, they didn't talk about that sentencing. Oh, no, they want mm-hmm. to talk about all the other stuff. They didn't want to talk about the time where Katanji Brown sentenced that guy to four yep. years in prison. So the QAnon people are angry at her already. And now yeah. they come hey. over the top with these pedophilia attacks. It's designed to put her life in danger. And that's you're, you're so right that this is why we have to talk about it, because this is what they're doing on purpose. Yeah, they're punishing her. And to, just to prove to you all, if you're watching, that they don't care about pedophilia. This isn't what they care about at all. Ginny Thomas, she had a firm. She has a, a Liberty Consulting. Of course, that's what it's called. They represented a PAC uh, called Fed Up PAC. And you know who that Fed Up PAC represented? Roy Moore. Okay, supported Roy Moore when he was running for the United States Senate. Christopher Rufo admitted that this is what they're doing. We had him on the show. He's the guy who pretends that he's an expert in something. I don't know what he thinks he's an expert in. But he said, hey, I think ideological grooming is good for the Twitter crowd. Political predators is better for the offline crowd. Basically, counseling Republicans of what you should say and how you should take this QAnon attack that is a cuckoo conspiracy theory and morph it into something politically useful. And do do you, I I don't know if you agree with me that it's significant who's using it. It's people like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham who fashion themselves future presidential candidates. They know it will get their base, that base behind them. Yeah, it's, it's a complete base play um for politics and and that does just to be clear that doesn't make it better like the fact that there's a a great chance that lindsey graham doesn't actually believe it he just wants to say it to be president that doesn't make it better i could argue that that makes it actually worse for him to be doing it that way um but you gotta you also have to remember when when talking about these um cuckoo for cocoa puffs 
um, conspiracy theories, again, they lead to real harm. It's not all because I I, I think you actually pointed it out during the confirmation hearings that while they're making these attacks on on Jackson that can cause uh, can put her life at danger. They're also being very clear about what her where her daughters go to school. Exactly. Right. Because like they they, they went right. to So so if you were a QAnon person watching the confirmation hearings, you know, where 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 Tanji Brown's Jackson family, where they work, where the kids go to school and these uh, ridiculous pedophile attacks. So they're giving them all the information that they need to do real harm and real bad things uh, uh, to this person whose only crime at this point is being a black woman. Right. Like everybody and they has, and that even the them. Republicans say she's obviously qualified. Even the Republicans say yeah. there's no moral scandal in terms of her personal behavior. This is this yeah. is this is directed at her just because of who she is. Yeah. And let, very quickly, I want to play Tom Cotton for you because he took it even lower today. The last Judge Jackson left the Supreme Court to go to Nuremberg and prosecute the case against the Nazis. This Judge Jackson might have gone there to defend them. Slavery defender Tom Cotton, your witness, yeah. Ellie. Insurrectionist aficionado Tom Cotton is the last person who gets to say that. First of all, he needs to keep Judge Jackson's name out his mouth because Robert Jackson, I'm sure Cotton doesn't know this, Robert Jackson was actually a huge defender of the Fourth Amendment and of due process. I'm sure he would have welcomed people to go defend the Nazis because that's how we know that there's a fair trial going on. So Tom Cotton has no idea what he's talking about when it comes to the legacy of that particular Supreme Court justice. But more to the point, Tom Cotton, in fact, is the person not doing the things to prosecute the people who actually uh, uh, ran a coup against this country and this government. He is the sympathizer to fascism, not Katanji Brown Jackson. He's, and that's, I think, as much as I can say about Tom Cotton on a family network show. <laughs> uh, on a family network, say, you and me both, we can text what we really are, the, the rest of what we have to say uh, that's not for polite company. Ellie Mistal, uh, appreciate you, my friend. Uh, and that is tonight's readout. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win.